Good morning, everyone. If you would please turn with me in your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 18. We'll be picking up where we left off and reading verses 1 to 40. 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 1 to 40. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find some grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through. Abraham went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your Lord, Behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would tell your servant to go into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord is not sent to seek you. And when they would not, excuse me, and when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you, I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he will kill me, although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid hundreds, uh, a hundred men of the Lord, prophets by fifties in a cave, and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go, tell the Lord, tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord, the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I even, on, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls get, be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood. But put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. 
Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of, of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked him, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two sayas of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offerings, excuse me, pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, O God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon. And slaughtered them there. Thus ends this reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Thank you. Well, today we come to one of the great moments of the Old Testament. The showdown on Mount Carmel. It ranks up there with the exodus from Egypt and the defeat of Goliath in terms of its power and significance. What we're about to see here is a great contest, a great battle, a great showdown between the Lord and Baal to determine once for all whose God is God. If the Lord is God, then Israel should follow Him. But if Baal is God, then Israel should follow Him. This chapter sets out to answer this question once and for all. Whose God is God? And it's one of the most important questions you can ever ask. Whose God is God? There are lots of religious options in our world. There are lots of gods to choose from. Whose God is God? Is Allah God? Is the God of the Mormons God? Are the 
Millions of gods of the Hindus God is the God of the Bible God. Which God is God? But there are more than just formal religious options. There are non-religious options as well. You see, a God is, is anything or anyone you give your heart to. That doesn't necessarily have to be a formal pagan deity. So which God is God? Politics? Celebrity? Popularity? Wealth? Status, pleasure, power, which God is God? And who should we follow? This chapter answers those critical questions. And I look forward to to diving into it together with you. But before we do, let's pray and ask the Spirit's help and blessing. Oh Spirit, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this remarkable book, this remarkable account, this faithful record, these remarkable events. We pray, O Spirit, that as we come to it today, that you would teach us from your word and you would exalt the Lord Jesus Christ in our midst. It's in his name we pray. Amen. 1 Kings 18 is like a three-act play. And it is marvelous to read. It's marvelous to study. The first act is found in verses 1 to 19, and it sets the stage for the coming drama. The second act, you can find in verses 20 to 39, that records the the dramatic contest that's been set up in the first act, and and we'll see that take place today. There's a third and final short act that comes at the end of the chapter. We won't have time to look at it together today, but it's important, and I would encourage you to, to read it later on. So let's dive in and take a look at what we see here. Let's look at the setup. Let's look at Act 1. First 20 verses are about setting the stage, drawing the battle lines, and getting everyone ready for what's going to take place on the mountain. And it all begins with mercy. It does. It it all begins with mercy. Look at how this chapter begins. It begins with the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord frames everything in the Elijah narratives, and it sets these events in motion once again. The word of the Lord comes to Elijah in verse 1, and the Lord says this, Go confront Ahab, I'm about to send rain. Now there's so much here we might like to talk about. It'd be fun to think about what three and a half years of drought would do to a nation and its economy. It'd be interesting to think about the Lord commanding Elijah to go see a man, to go visit a man who's been actively seeking his life for three and a half years. But I don't want to talk about those things, although that might be fun. What I want us to do is think about something else. I want us to think about God's mercy. Because it starts in verse 1. See, in the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord told His people that if they turned from Him, if they rejected Him, if they abandoned Him, He would send judgment in the form of a drought on the land. In the same book, in the same place, the Lord also says, when you repent and when you return, I'll lift the drought and send Rain. In fact, if we had been studying the book of 1 Kings together, King Solomon says the same thing in 1 Kings 8 when the temple is dedicated. So in verse 1, when we get there and we see God promising to send rain, we might be thinking, well, great, Israel's repented. Great, Ahab's had a change of heart. Great, people are are ready to, to return to the Lord with all their heart. See, that's how it's supposed to go in the book of Deuteronomy. There's sin, there's judgment, there's repentance, there's rescue. But that's not what we see here. We see sin and we see judgment. But we don't see repentance. Not yet. We see mercy. 
There's no evidence of repentance here whatsoever. The Lord is not sending rain because they're repenting. He's sending rain so that they might repent. This is a powerful chapter. And there is judgment here. There's violence here. There's mercy everywhere from beginning to end. Elijah was sent not to destroy this people, but to turn their hearts back. That is the ministry of Elijah in a nutshell. It's a heart-turning ministry. You know, maybe the Lord's doing that with you today. Maybe you had a bad week. Bad weeks happen. Maybe it wasn't a good week. Maybe you're here today, your body is here, but your heart's actually turned away from the Lord. And you're here because... That's what you do, because it's the right time of the year, it's the right season. If that's you, perhaps today the Lord, by His Spirit and through His Word, will turn your heart back to Him, because that's what the Lord delights to do. He delights to show mercy to His undeserving people. Note the mercy. Secondly, note the, the new servant. We've seen new mercy. We see this new servant, and his name is, is Obadiah. And he is a, a really interesting figure. We are told that, that he feared the Lord greatly. That's a good thing. And we're told that he protected the Lord's prophets when Jezebel and her husband were hunting them to the point of extinction. But there's something else that's interesting here. And when you read the Bible and you encounter something that seems a bit off, that's really where you need to focus like a laser beam. Here we have Obadiah who, who fears the Lord, who protects his prophets, and yet when Elijah comes to him and tells him, I'm back and I want you to go talk to Ahab, what does Obadiah say? What have I done to you that you would give me a death sentence? What have I done to you? How have I sinned against you that you would send me to Ahab to kill me? Now, we saw this exact same response from someone last week. That's what the widow said after her son had died. You haven't been brought here to rescue me. You've been brought here to bring my sins to remembrance, to, to, to judge me, to destroy me. Now, what are we to make of this interesting character? On the one hand, he's described as faithful, and on the other hand, not so much. I mean, he clearly trusts the Lord, as did the widow of Zarephath. But on the other hand, his trust had limits. He trusted the Lord up to a point. He would serve the Lord, rescue prophets up to a point. But, but when you get to life and death matters, at least for his own life and death, all bets were off. Elijah, in a minute, is going to challenge Israel to stop doing something. To stop limping around. To stop sitting on the fence Perhaps Obadiah, in some small way, illustrates that tendency. Perhaps he doesn't. But this much is clear to me. It is easy and it's wrong to impose limits on your trust in the Lord. The Lord never lets His people down. Go ask the widow in Zarephath. Go ask her son. Go ask Elijah. Go ask your neighbors. I imagine we had a, a time of, of testimony in here right now. Many of you could testify that the Lord has never let you down. Friends, that's the point of Zarephath, isn't it? 
That's the point of the refining fires. The point of the refining process last week is to teach us to trust the Lord. Trials teach trust. And Obadiah hasn't quite learned that yet, but he will. Note the new mercy. Note the new servant. Thirdly, note the, the new confrontation. Well, Obadiah gets off the fence, renews his faith, and goes and speaks to Ahab. He tells him that Elijah is back and he's coming to meet him today. And when the king meets Elijah for the second time, he greets him with, with insults. Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Now, this is not an empty insult. There have been troublers of Israel before in the Old Testament. What's remarkable that Ahab seems to know about them. He's using a title, troubler of Israel. And there have been two before. One man's name was Achan, and the other man's name was Saul, King Saul. It's quite an ironic insult. You see, Achan and Saul troubled Israel because they refused to listen and obey the Lord. And as a result, they brought judgment down on God's people. See what Ahab's doing? He is the new troubler of Israel. He is the new Achan. He is the new Saul. And Elijah tells him so to his face. He said this, I've not troubled Israel, but you have. And your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. How do you become a troubler of Israel? Well, it's very simple, sadly. It's not complex. It's not hard. It just takes two things. Abandon the Lord. Embrace idols. That's how you become a troubler of Israel in your home. That's how you become a troubler of Israel in your church. That's how you become a troubler of Israel in your marriage, on the job, with your kids. That's how you trouble your own soul. Abandon the word and follow the Baals. After the confrontation with Ahab, it's time for the contest. And so Elijah tells Ahab to, to gather all Israel at Mount Carmel so they can settle this Baal business once and for all. Now, Mount Carmel is a really interesting location. It's a relatively long coastal mountain range that stretches from northern Israel to the Mediterranean Sea. It's about 40 kilometers long. It's about 8 kilometers wide. And at its highest point, its summit, where we're going to be today, it's about 1,725 feet above sea level. Now, this is not the Schilthorn, this is not the Jungfrau, this is not Mount Everest, but you've got to remember where we are. We're not talking about the Himalayas or the Swiss Alps, we're talking about a place like the Dead Sea, the lowest place on earth. Now, this might not sound impressive to us, but, but make no mistake about it, Mount Carmel is perfect. It is an elevated stage for this, com, uh, this contest to, to take place. And the contest begins with an indictment. Once everyone is, is gathered there on Mount Carmel, Elijah addresses the crowd. Look at what he says in verse 21. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. And the people did not answer him a word. What a remarkable statement. They didn't answer him a word. How long will you go limping between different opinions? That's, a, that's a, an interesting indictment. right? Ahab and Jezebel have been ardent Baal enthusiasts. 
They built Baal altars and temples. They put Asherah poles up all over the land. Moreover, they've been hunting down God's prophets, trying to exterminate them from the land. But despite their best evangelistic efforts, Israel doesn't seem entirely convinced. See, Baal hasn't done a lot for his worshipers in the past three years. He's let a lot of people down. A lot of prayers have gone unanswered. A lot of sacrifices have been made in vain. Baal hasn't lived up to his billing as the rain god or the god of fertility. In fact, this chapter opens with Ahab just like creating a search throughout the land to find a little bit of green grass to feed his horses and mules before they starve to death. Baal has been a worthless idol. He's let everybody down time and time again, and yet the people still aren't willing to let him go. They're still limping between two opinions. The Lord is utterly different. He has done everything He promised in His Word. He drove out the inhabitants of the Promised Land, just like He promised. He raised up kings for the people, just like He promised. He came to dwell with them in the temple, just like He promised. He raised up prophets to call them back if they went away, just like He promised. And He promised to send a drought and a famine if they refused. And He did that very thing. Even so, the people still refuse to commit themselves to Him. They are scenting on the fence. They are limping between two opinions. They're still refusing to commit themselves one way or the other. So Elijah says, get off the fence. Once and for all, get off the fence. Stop limping between two opinions. If the Lord is God, then follow Him. Don't miss that word. And if Baal is God, then follow Him. Do you see the connection he's making between theology and discipleship? Follow the God that is. Follow the God that exists. Elijah assumes that your theology and your discipleship are bound together. You follow what you worship and you worship what you follow. In a minute, the Lord's going to show us and them who's God and who's not. But it's good for us to ask us, ask ourselves today, are we following the Lord? I'm assuming your presence indicates you've made a choice between Baal and the Lord. But are we actively and consciously and purposefully seeking to follow Him in thought, word, and deed? It's easy, isn't it, to take our souls and sort of chop it up and to compartmentalize our obedience in such a way that we can affirm truth about God with our mouth and yet let parts of our heart be far from Him. It's possible to confess the Lord is God, yet actually with our hearts follow Baal in certain respects. Is our discipleship consistent with our theology or are we limping between two opinions? Perhaps you're here today and you know that you're a limper. Perhaps you're here today and you know that there are glaring inconsistencies between what you profess and what you confess in your actual practice. Let's imagine that that, that that's true of you. It may be true of you. If that's the case, what should you do? If you're a limper and you know you're a limper, 
What should you do? In 1 Kings 17 and 18, people are always accusing God of being out to get them. That's what the widow thought in Zarephath. That's what Obadiah thought early in this chapter. What should our response to God be if we know we're limpers? Should we run from Him? Should we seek to flee? Is that what we should do when God confronts us with our own inconsistencies and exposes our inconsistencies? Should we run from Him? How should we respond? Your answer to that question says a lot about your understanding of God and His gospel. See, what's the purpose of this showdown? This, I think, is, gets to the heart of what's going on here. What's the, what's the purpose of this showdown? What does Elijah want from compromised, contradictory limpers? Does he want them destroyed? No. Does he want them to run away? No. He wants to draw them in. He wants to draw them back. He wants to turn their hearts back. That's mercy. It's everywhere in 1 Kings 18. And so if you're here today and you know that you're a limper, I have good news for you. God's not out to get you. He's out to bring you back. Come home. Return to the Lord and follow Him with your whole heart. The contest begins with an indictment. Now let's look at the, the contest itself. It is rich. Is this going to be a fair fight between the prophets of Baal and Elijah? Not at all. And that's what makes it so good. First of all, the prophets of Baal have a numerical advantage. It's 450 prophets of Baal versus one prophet for the Lord. Now, Elijah's a good prophet. He's good by ancient Near Eastern standards. He's good by biblical standards. But there's just one of them. Really, in terms of numbers, does Elijah stand a chance? Well, we'll see, but the odds are definitely against him. Secondly, there's a, a geographical advantage. We're not in Judah. We're not in Jerusalem. We're not at the, in the temple precincts. We're not on the bronze altar. We're in Israel. We're in northern Israel. We're just south of Sidonia. This is Baal country. This nation is run by Baal worshipers. And Baal and his prophets have home field advantage. Thirdly, Baal has the bovine advantage. There are going to be two bulls used in this contest. They're going to be killed and cut up and offered on the altar. And Elijah gave the prophets of Baal first choice. Maybe they'll pick the one that looks really dry. The one that seems to have a, a lot of fat on it. Or who knows, maybe they're rubbing oil all over one of them and, and putting dirt on the other one. Who knows? The point, though, is that Elijah is giving them every conceivable advantage, including the pick of the cow, so that no one can accuse him of any funny business if and when the Lord vindicates him. There's also, a, fourthly, a meteorolo meteorological advantage. I mean, think about this. What was Baal's specialty? What was his divine superpower supposed to be? Well, he was supposed to be the god of rain, and storms, the God of lightning. And what is this challenge? Well, they go up on a mountain, they erect a wooden altar, they put a, an animal there, and a God who answers by fire, who sends lightning to ignite the altar. That's the God who is God. By the way, this isn't just any mountain. You know, there are certain mountains in the world that get struck by lightning almost every day. 
mountains in, in Arizona and the Caribbean and Bangladesh and Venezuela, that because of their elevation and because of meteorological conditions, they get struck by lightning 200, 300, 400 times a year. There's one like this in the Middle East. It's actually Mount Carmel. So maybe dumb luck will work in Baal's favor. Maybe they'll just happen to build the altar right here on a place that gets struck by lightning a lot, and maybe it'll all sort of just work out. Maybe Baal will get lucky. He'll be in the right place at the right time. Baal also had a competitive advantage. His prophets get to go first. And if Baal showed up and answered by fire, then the contest would be over in no time before Elijah even got to pray. And so with all these advantages, the contest begins. The prophets choose their cow and they sacrifice it to Baal. They put it on a wooden altar and they build it uh, that they built and they begin to pray. From morning till noon they cried out, "O Baal, answer us." But the scripture says there was no voice. And no one answered. So they kept limping around the altar that they had made. It's so tragic. There are people doing that today. People in mosques today, people in Jehovah's Witness churches, the Kingdom Hall, the Mormon tabernacles that are praying at this very moment, sincerely heartfelt prayers, and there's no voice. No one answers. It's about lunchtime, Elijah starts heckling them. I think the kids might enjoy his taunts. They're actually quite funny. He tells them, hey guys, this is taking a while. Will you turn it up a little bit? Will you talk a little bit louder? Will you cry a little bit louder? I mean, he is a God, isn't he? He's real, isn't he? He can hear, can't he? He can respond, right? Well, maybe you need to be louder because he's, he's lost in deep thought. He's reading a good book. He's contemplating existence. He isn't paying attention right now. Maybe he's indisposed. That's what it says. Maybe he's in the restroom. Just keep on shouting. I'm sure he'll hear you in just a moment. Maybe he's gone on a long walk. You need to summon him back. Maybe he's gone on a weekend vacation. Maybe he's just asleep and needs rousing. Hey, I'm sure he's real. Just keep shouting. Get louder and he'll hear you in a moment. As you read this and you sort of laugh at that, and I think we're meant to laugh at that. The author sees this as, as a bit funny. As the day goes on, though, things get a little more dark, a little more tired, and a little more hopeless. See, the prophets of Baal believed that they could manipulate him. They could do things to make him listen to them. So in hopes of manipulating Baal, they began to cut themselves with swords and lances. Notice what it said, as was their custom. In other words, this is normal Baal worship. In order to, to gain Baal's ear, they harmed themselves, they cut themselves, they, they bled themselves, and they mixed their blood with that of the sacrifice. We actually have a surviving eyewitness account from an Egyptian traveler to this area who witnessed the same sort of thing. He described it as frenzied demon possession. It's a sad thing, isn't it? That they believe that in order to gain God's favor, they had to harm themselves. They had to hurt themselves. They had to, to injure themselves. That would get God's attention. So different from the God of the Bible, who himself endures injury, even death, to rescue his own people. Now before moving on, I want to just stop and think about something as it relates to false religion. I'm going to talk to the kids here. 
Because this, is, I think, is something that I want you to hear, and I want my guys to hear again. Just because someone worships a false god doesn't mean they're insincere. Just because someone worships a false god does not mean they're insincere. The prophets of Baal were very sincere. They were earnest. They were believing in what they were doing. You know, kids, one day you will meet other kids who worship other gods. They may grow up in a Mormon home. They may grow up in a Muslim home. They may grow up in a Hindu home. They may grow up the children of Jehovah's Witnesses. And as you get to know them, you'll discover that they're very sincere in their false religion. They're very sincere, just like you are about yours. And when you make that discovery, and when you, when you realize that, that they're serious, and that you're serious, and that you were raised in a Christian home, and that they were raised in a, in a Muslim home, Satan is going to come in and try to, to, to trick you with a lie. He's going to try to tell you this. He's going to try to convince you that just because, because you were both serious about your religion, because you grew up in a Christian home and they grew up in another religious home, they must be basically the same. You were raised in a Christian home. You're a serious Christian. They were raised in a Muslim home. They're a serious Muslim. Therefore, there's no real difference between being a Christian or Muslim. Friends, when Satan tries to trick you with that lie, I want to remind you of this passage and remind you that sincerity or seriousness does not make a religion true or false. The prophets of Baal were sincere. The hijackers who flew planes into the World Trade Center were sincere. They believed in what they were doing. Does that make their religion true? Not at all. As midday passed, they raved on, but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Friends, sincerity is not the ultimate test of religious truth. Reality is the ultimate test of religious truth. Is the God you worship real? Is He the one true and living God? It is possible, as you know, to be sincere and sincerely wrong. Well, now that we've seen the, the setup, we've seen Baal's team go, now it's time to see Elijah's turn. After all the shouting and raving, after all the cutting and bloodletting, it's Elijah's turn. And we're given some really interesting facts about how Elijah proceeded. First, we're told when he acted. And when did he act? At the time of the oblation. At the time of the evening sacrifice. That's a really interesting feature. That's a really interesting time to begin. See, each day at twilight, a whole burnt offering was made for the sins of God's people. If you go back to Leviticus, there are five kinds of uh, sacrifices or offerings. And the first kind, the whole burnt offering, is the most important kind the entire sacrifice, the lamb without blemish, was offered to the Lord to make atonement for sin and reconcile our relationship to, to God. Do you see what he's doing? Do you see what he's connecting? He's bringing sacrifice and prayer together. They are related. We can be reconciled to God. We can have relationship with God. We can pray to God. He will hear us because a substitute has atoned for our sin and brought us back to God. Does that sound gospelish? It's meant to. We can pray to God and we know that He hears us because we come through the sacrifice of His Son. Note when He acts, also knows what He does. The prophets of Baal built a wood, an altar of wood, the more, which is more flammable than stone if lightning happens to strike nearby. But that's not what Elijah did. He, 
didn't just build a stone altar, he repaired a stone altar. More specifically, he repaired a stone altar by rebuilding it with 12 stones. It's another enacted parable. It's another lesson in miniature. This isn't the first time 12 stones have played an important role in Israel's history. The high priest of Israel's tabernacle and temple had a breastpiece with 12 stones, one for each tribe. This was built and constructed at the end of the book of Exodus. We're also reminded of a time when Jacob was met by the Lord and he built an altar of stone to worship him. We're also reminded here of the 12-stone altar that, that God's people built when they crossed the Jordan and renewed the covenant with the Lord, a 12-stone memorial to commemorate that event in Joshua 4. Do you see what he's doing? He's reminding them of their history. Reminding them of their identity. They are God's covenant people. He's reminding them of the exodus and the conquest. He's reminding them of time before all this idolatry. Before the kingdom's divided. Right now the kingdom's divided. There's ten and two, right? Ten tribes in the northern kingdom, two in the south. That's not what Elijah's building. He's building twelve stone structure. He's summing them back to the Lord of the covenant. Then he builds obstacles. That's another thing to see. So far, he's given them every advantage. Now he gives himself disadvantages. He digs a ditch. He pours water over the altar and the sacrifice time and time and time again. Where does he get water from? In the midst of a drought on top of a mountain. It's probably a miracle. Whatever he does, he does it 12 times. 12 stones, 12 dousings. Another symbolic act. Why do you think Elijah creates these obstacles for himself? Why do you think he makes it harder for God to answer? Well, isn't it obvious? He wants to make sure that, that everybody knows who deserves credit for what's about to take place. And then comes the prayer. Look at verses 36 to 38. This is really the climax of, of the whole. At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, that I have done all that these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. No screaming, no raving, no cutting, no bleeding, just a simple prayer. God's not impressed by great speeches, eloquent words, Children, you can pray here in faith with simple words and a simple prayer through Christ and God will hear you. This prayer is simple. This prayer is not just simple, it's covenantal. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. He's remembering God's covenant promises to His people and asking God to do so as well. He's remembering those great promises about a special people and a special place and a special king who's going to come from them and bring salvation to all peoples. This prayer is simple. It's covenantal. It's evangelistic. What does Elijah want? Twice he asked the Lord to let this people know who the one true living God really is. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. The widow discovered last week that the Lord is the one true and living God. And he wants to teach Israel that lesson again. But that's not all. He doesn't want to, to merely prove to them that the Lord is God. He wants to turn their hearts back. I love this part of 1 Kings 18. The Lord is 
working towards their repentance. He doesn't want his people destroyed. He wants them to repent. He's asking the Lord to grant them repentance. Mercy is all over this chapter. This event is not about winning an argument. It's about rescuing the lost. It's a simple and stunning and beautiful prayer. It didn't take hours to make. It didn't take any blood or cutting. It didn't require shouting or raving. He's offered a simple prayer and faith at the time of sacrifice. And the fire of the Lord fell. It consumed everything. It consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and the water. It was a great event, a supernatural event, a public event before the eyes of the world, which offered indisputable proof that the Lord is God. And so after the fire fell, the people fell on their faces and worshipped the Lord. And wouldn't it be great if the Lord did something like that again? Wouldn't it be great if there was a great public supernatural act before the eyes of the world that could offer definitive proof that Jesus is who He said He is and has done what He said He has done? Oh, that there were such an event. There is such an event. It's the resurrection of Christ. It's the greater Mount Carmel. It's the defining miracle of human history. How can you know whose God is God? The God who enters history. The God who acts in history. The God who reveals Himself in history. The God who vindicates Himself in history. You can know that the Lord is God. And that, the Christ, that Christ is Savior because of His resurrection from the dead. And if you know that He is God, what should you do? You should turn your hearts to Him. And follow Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this grand public miracle that confirms for us and for them definitively that You are God and that we should follow You. We thank You, O Lord, that this wasn't the last great public act where You make such declarations. We thank You for the greater Mount Carmel, Calvary, and the empty tomb. And we pray, Lord, that as we consider those great events, that we would not merely confess that you are our God, that we would follow you with our whole hearts. We thank you for this faithful record of this remarkable event. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would use it by your Spirit to make us more faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you would please turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 23.